Welcome to the Fullness Church Weekly Podcast. At Fullness, we value the Bible and believe it is critical to teach it clearly, remaining true to its central focus of hearing and living the transforming news about Jesus. Our hope is this teaching will do just that. Good morning. How are you? I know it's a cold, rainy day. Coming off of that Thanksgiving high. Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy. Once again, we're going to actually be finishing up 2 Timothy today. We've been in 1 and 2 Timothy for quite a few weeks now. We've been talking about living in, leading in, and loving today, loving a a broken world. Uh, As you're turning, Monday afternoon of this past week, I had... Been in, I had a shorter day in the office, was here for a little bit, but went home early and was at home, kind of just relaxing a little bit, to be honest, kind of gearing up for a slow week of, of Thanksgiving. And I get a call. Um, I'm sitting on my couch. I get a call, and it's Pastor Bart. And he says, Hey, Scott, I want you to preach on Sunday. I'm like, Oh, oh, okay. See, Pastor Bard and Miss Kathy, they had left on Tuesday. They were going out to Texas to celebrate Thanksgiving with family. They were going to Houston. And uh, his son, Jared, who coaches um, and is assistant, assistant coach with the Oregon State soccer team, they are in the NCAA tournament, and they were playing in Dallas in the Sweet 16 um, on Saturday night. And so Bart and Kathy had this opportunity to drive up from Houston to Dallas Saturday night, see the game, which meant that they were not going to be back in time to be here this morning. And so Pastor Bart was like, well, pray about it. Pray about it if you if you feel led to, to lead on, on to preach on Sunday. And I was like, okay, pretty much know how this prayer is going to go. Uh, so, and ironically, the, the passage that I was assigned today as we wrap up 2 Timothy is... Preach the word, be prepared, in season and out of season. So, here we go. Ready or not. So, what makes this a, a challenging passage, though, is this is likely, this, this, these are the last written words that we have of the Apostle Paul before he dies. And these are some of his most personal words that he writes in all of the New Testament. The situation is that he is in a... Roman prison, it's likely kind of a, quite possible that it's a hole in the ground with um, kind of a hole in the ceiling that's letting in a little bit of sunlight, and he's just chained in this prison. Um, He's already been on trial. He's already received his execution um, sentencing. He kind of alludes to that in this passage, and he doesn't know exactly when that's going to be, but he knows that it's coming, that he's going to die. He also knows that winter is coming and that he might actually be alive during winter, chained up in this cold prison, and um, he's probably lonely. Pretty much the only person that's with him is Luke. Everyone else has deserted him, that he says. But the situation in Ephesus is still complicated. There's still heretical teachings that are voices that are there in that setting, and his apprentice, Timothy, is still having to deal with that situation. And Paul basically writes to Timothy in these last words, this last part of this letter, to basically say, hey, Timothy, come and see me before winter, before I die. Uh, Bring some books, bring some parchments, bring my winter coat in case I'm still alive during winter, and bring John Mark also. And we actually don't even know 
if Timothy made it to him before, before he died. Um, so what are Paul's last words that he gives to Timothy as he tells him to love and lead in a broken world? So I'm going to just read through the very um, end of the letter, picking up right where Pastor Bart left off, left off last week, um, starting in chapter 3, verse 10 of, of 2 Timothy. Paul writes this. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live in a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with his present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak. I left with Carpus at Troas and also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.
closes out like this. Greet Prisca and Aquila. In the household of Anisiphorus, Erastus, Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. Grace to you. you can flip to that next slide, Mary Jo. I'll just, I'll read it right here. The Lord be with you. Grace be with you. So there's three things I see at least that Paul leaves Timothy with. More could be said, but I think it can be narrowed down to three things that he gives Paul and how he is to love in a broken world. And the first is this, tether yourself to the truth. Tether yourself to the truth. This is the end of of chapter three, verses 10 through 17. Paul basically says to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of. Continue in it. You've seen how I've been persecuted. You're gonna be persecuted. Tough times are gonna come against you. But don't be surprised by that. The temptation for us as times continue to get more and more hostile to followers of Christ in our, in our broken world, the temptation is to just kind of say, I'm going to step back. I'm going to just kind of chill out. This is getting a little intense. I'm going to kind of back up. And Paul says, no, press in harder. Continue in what you have already become convinced of. Immerse yourself more fully in the scriptures. We have a, we have a, a Shoup family tradition that I actually started a, a few years ago where it's about this time of year. It's probably actually this next week that I'm gonna do this where we start an email chain amongst all those in the extended Shoop family. We're scattered throughout, um, throughout the U.S. And um, it's where we share our favorite books that we read throughout the year. And we also share any like favorite podcasts or shows or movies, anything that we took in throughout, throughout the year. And uh, usually my sister Sarah um, wins for most books read. Some of the uh, more non-readers in our family have taken to lovingly calling this the email of shame. <laughs> but um, I, I love history. I, I, I like reading history. I like especially um, kind of early American history. And so two of the books that are going to be on my list this year are two books about early American history. And I put these up here because um, we tend to think that kind of the mishandling, the misuse of Scripture is more of a recent thing in our, in our time. Um, but it's really not. It's really that the mishandling of Scripture is as old as and even older than our country in this land. So one of the, the books that, that I read this year was a biography of Thomas Jefferson. Um, one of our, our brilliant founding fathers. He was the author of the Declaration of Independence. Um, very complicated and complex, um, contradictory man. He's both a great defender of religious liberty, which I'm very thankful for, also a slaveholder. Um, third president of the United States, and he, he famously respected the, the morals and the teachings of Jesus, um, although he did not hold to the historic Orthodox Christian faith. And he put together a document that people have typically called the Jefferson Bible, but he actually called it the, the Life and Morals of Jesus Christ. And in this book, he, um, he actually never meant it to be public. It was really for his own private use. But he, he actually cut out, he literally cut out columns from the Gospels, both English and Latin and Greek and, and uh, French versions, very well 
red educated guy um, from the Gospels, and he put him in these parallel columns in this blank book, um, and he bound it with this expensive red leather. Um, the passages that basically the, the, the moral teachings, the parables of Jesus. And historian Thomas Kidd, who wrote this book, um, he says this about Jefferson and the, the life and morals of Jesus Christ. He says, thus it is not so much that Jefferson cut out the supernatural elements of the Gospels, but that he left them behind in gutted editions. Crucially, Jefferson ended his account of Jesus' life with his death and his burial. He left out the, the resurrection. Now, it's easy for us to look at Jefferson and say, man, how terrible of him. But in reality, are, are people today any different? We, we love to do this, do we not? Where we take our kind of our favorite pet passages of Scripture and say, I'm going to take that. I like that. That speaks to me. These other parts don't really fit with my palate. I'm going to kind of leave them conveniently behind. Paul says, no, 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 no. It doesn't go like that. All Scripture, all Scripture, not just the parts that you like, but all Scripture is breathed out by God. Sorry, can you go back to the all Scripture, Mary Jo? All scripture is breathed out by God and is basically useful to form you in to the man of God, the woman of God that he has called you to be. The other book that I, I read this year, um, the other one I have up there is, uh, it was a book on basically how the Bible was used in the decades leading up to and during the American Revolution. So 18th century. And what struck me the most about this kind of this time was pretty much everybody held Scripture in high regard in that time. But everybody was appealing to Scripture to make their case for what, whatever they were arguing for. So the, the loyalists who were loyal to the crown, to, to Great Britain, the ones who were opposed to the war, they were appealing to Scripture to make their case, saying this is how a true follower of Christ should live. And the war is not something that we should partake in. Meanwhile, the patriots, the ones who were for the American Revolution, they were appealing to Scripture to make their case. And then you had a, over here the, the, the Quakers who were just anti-war pacifists. They were appealing to Scripture to make their case. Those who were for slavery and the slave trade, which at that time was almost everyone, they appealed to Scripture to make their case. And those who were against slavery, they also were relying on Scripture to make their, their arguments. And although times have changed in many ways, isn't this still the case? Everybody's appealing to the Bible to, to back up their claim and making all kinds of crazy claims based on Scripture, supposedly. And if you don't believe me, just get on the Internet and see. Paul says to Timothy, he says about Timothy, that Timothy was acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures, he meant really the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, from childhood. That he had grown up immersing himself in the scriptures, sitting at the feet of godly, faithful teachers. First his grandma, then his mother, later Paul. Are you immersed in scripture? Not just kind of casually spending time with it once in a while, but are you are you immersed in it? Are you praying it? Are you meditating? Are you in relationship with people, 
where you can dialogue with them about what you're reading, how you're being shaped and formed by the Bible. A few years ago, a, a major American megachurch, they were, they were concerned about the, the spiritual health of the people in their church, of their congregation. Um, and so they decided to do this major survey. And they, they discovered, they were very concerned to see that a lot of people in their large congregation were actually not really growing spiritually. They were, they were not maturing in Christ. But there was one segment that caught their eye who was growing and maturing in their walk with Christ. And they looked at that, that kind of segment of people in their, in their congregation, and they noticed that there was one factor, one catalyst that was the difference maker in this smaller group of people who were growing spiritually. Can anyone guess what the, the difference maker was, the catalyst was, for this one group that was actually growing spiritually? Any guesses? It was Bible study. They were the ones who were consistently studying the Bible. This is what, what they said in their, in their findings of this survey. This is Willow Creek Church, if anyone's curious. This is from a few years ago that, that they did this, this survey of their people. And they said this. Nothing else comes close to having the same impact as the Bible when it comes to spiritual growth. For those in the close to Christ and Christ-centered stages... Reflection on scripture is twice as impactful as any other catalyst. The key difference in the impact of reflection on scripture across spiritual continuum is frequency. They go on and say, for someone in the exploring Christ stage, shifting from reflecting on scripture rarely, meaning a few times a year, to Frequently, meaning several times per week, speeds the movement to the growing in Christ stage. For the later movements, increasing from frequent to daily reflection on Scripture plays a significant role in spiritual growth. Who would have thought that those who are consistently in the Scripture are those who are maturing in Christ? The only way, I'm going to just go ahead and make the universal statement, the only way that you are going to be a person who loves in a broken world is to be someone who is tethered to the truth. And the only way that you're going to be someone who is tethered to the truth is to be someone who is immersed in Scripture. Paul goes on to say this. He says, be tethered to the truth. Then he says, speak the truth with urgency and love. Speak truth with urgency and love. Moving now into chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. He's saying this is where he gives Timothy a charge and he commands him to preach the word. Now, I know that the majority of the people sitting in this room and watching online will never actually be called to quote-unquote preach a sermon on a Sunday morning in front of a group of people. But everyone here who knows Jesus, who calls him Lord and Savior, is called to testify to Jesus to open their mouth, to speak aloud of who Jesus is and to be ready to do this, not just when it feels convenient, not just when it makes sense, not just when you feel like it, but out of season at all times, to be ready to speak, to testify of Jesus. And Paul is saying that there's an urgency. That's kind of the, the theme of this is there is an urgency to speaking aloud of Jesus. And that urgency is still with us to, 
today. And there's three reasons I see that Paul gives for why there is an urgency to us speaking the truth in love. And there, there's, here they are. First one is this, why there is urgency to speaking is Jesus is coming. I went too fast. Jesus is coming back. Can you go back to the, that first sub point, Mary Jo? First reason why we need to be urgent is Jesus is coming back. Now, we don't know when Jesus is coming back, of course. We're not going to play the, the fool's errand of trying to guess and play the, the, the predicting game of when he's coming back. But Jesus is coming back. And this is not a metaphorical thing like, oh, yeah, in a, in a sense, like things are going to get better. That's what it means when he comes back. No, Jesus is physically going to one day split the sky and judge the living and the dead. And that knowledge impacts how we live and how we love in a broken world. Paul, I love the way that Paul describes himself in this passage. He says, he is one who loves his appearance. He loves Christ's appearance. As I get older, that's, that's something that I want just personally to, to be something that is true of me, something that des- describes me accurately, is to be someone who loves Christ's appearance. Francis Chan, the, the author and the speaker, he tells a story of once being at a, a play with his family, really his, his wife's side of the family, um, with his wife and specifically with his wife's grandma, um, Grandma Clara, he called her, who's a very, a very godly woman. And during the intermission of this play that they were at, he, Francis Chan, he leans over to his, his um, wife's grandma and says, Grandma Clara, how are you liking the play? And he says, Grandma Clara, this is what she said to him. She said, honey, I don't really want to be here right now. And Francis Chan's like, oh, why is that, Grandma Clara? And she said, I just don't know if this is where I want to be when Christ comes back. She said, I just, I don't want him to come back and find me sitting here in this theater. There's other things that I would rather be doing when Jesus comes back. Now, you may, you may actually find that example a little bit offensive. Um, I'm, the point that I'm making is not like you can't ever do anything fun. Um, but this is an example of someone who really believes that Jesus is coming back and who loves his appearing. And there's an urgency to how she lives her life. So if Jesus is coming back, that's one reason why there's an urgency to the moment. But also, Paul says that people can't tolerate the truth. That's the next few verses, verses three and four. People cannot tolerate the truth. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gives this incredibly perceptive description of the human condition. It's incredibly brilliant, the insight here into who we are as human beings. He basically describes people for whom desire precedes a concern for truth. The desire comes first and it overrides and it leads a concern for truth. And so the criteria that these people have for the voices that they are accumulating around themselves that they want to listen to is basically, will it entertain me? Will it tell me what I want to hear? Will it confirm, will it further confirm my confirmation bias? Will it convince me that what I know and like is, is right and is true? That's the people that I want to listen to. That's the people that I want speaking into my life. You know, we like to think that we're these super rational brains on a stick, as James K. Smith says. 
is the kind of the, the vivid um, image. The word is these super rational creatures that were really good at desiring to know truth and, and pursuing truth and we're good at recognizing truth and discovering it. Paul's like, no, the reality is you're really good at putting voices in front of you that tell you what you want to hear. And by the way, lest we think that Paul's just kind of pointing his finger about those people out there, picking on them, he, he does have them in mind in the greater passage, but he really, he's talking about those in the church. He's saying, we're the ones who are liable to this. We're in danger of just gathering voices that say what we want to hear when it comes to politics, when it comes to how we think about ourselves and our sexuality, when it comes to how we think about our relation to the world. And the example that Paul's going to give a few verses later in verse 10 is this guy named Demas, who used to be a, a fellow worker, a, a co-worker with Paul in the gospel. And he's since deconstructed his faith. You know, deconstruction is kind of the, a hot word right now, but it's not new. It's as old as, as the first century. But the reason that Paul says that Demas walked away is what? He says that he loved this present world. In contrast to Paul saying, I, I loved Christ appearing, Demas is in love with this present world. We're surrounded by people who love this present world. They want to convince us to love it too. A few weeks ago, my, uh, my wife, Andy, she teaches Bible, 10th through 12th grade Bible at Evangel Classical Christian School. And she took her 12th grade class, her seniors, on a field trip. And they went to the university of the campus of the University of Montevallo. Um, to have spiritual conversations with the, the students and the faculty on, on the campus. And it was a really eye-opening, insightful trip for these, these seniors. And they had lots of fascinating conversations with these Montevallo students. And um, Andy was telling me about it. She said, basically, they were an open book. And they, they shared freely about their anxiety, about their depression, um, about their confusion, and it, it, was, it was sobering. It, was, it wasn't like if they were going to have suicidal thoughts. It was like, when it's my turn, this is the time when I had it. It, it, was, it was everybody. It's everybody in that generation. But Andy said that one girl um, who she was talking to, um, she asked her at one point at the end of their conversation, said, if there's any question that you had that you wish you could get the answer to, a question that you could just be given the answer to, what would it be? And she said that the girl answered her. She said, Will it get any better? Will it get any better? You know, people are everywhere looking for voices to, to tell them what they want to hear, but we're beginning to see, like visibly, it's not hard to see anymore that it's leading to death. It's leading to confusion. It's leading to pain in their lives. And if people are broken and we know how they can be unbroken, it's unloving not to speak the truth in love with urgency. If we know the greatest news in the history of the universe, if we know the greatest person in the history of mankind, Paul says, you better open your mouth and speak the truth with urgency and love. But then he gives another reason. 
if that was, as if that wasn't enough, the fact that Jesus is coming back, people can't tolerate the truth. He gives one more reason why we should speak with urgency. The gospel can't stop with the previous generation. The gospel can't stop with the previous generation. The overall theme here is, of course, Paul's about to die. And he knows it. He's already been given his, his execution sentence. He knows that his death is imminent. Verses 6 through 8. He basically speaks in the present tense. He says, I am being poured out as a drink offering. He speaks in the past tense. I have fought the good, fit, the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What a thing to be able to say at the end of your life. And then he speaks in the future tense. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. But in every generation, we are facing the reality that those who have gone on before are not getting any younger. And the day is coming when they will no longer be here to continue. One of my modern heroes in the faith uh, died earlier this year, Tim Keller, a man that has really impacted how I think about what it means to follow Jesus in this, in this modern day. And we celebrate those who have gone before us. We imitate their way of life. But we also, we also say the gospel can't stop with them. It has to continue. It has to keep being moved on. It can't stop with their generation. John Stott, a preacher from a previous generation, says this. The torch of the gospel is handed down by each generation to the next. As the leaders of the former generation die, it is all the more urgent for those of the next generation to step forward bravely to take their place. We cannot rest forever on the leadership of the preceding generation. The day comes when we must step into their shoes and ourselves take the lead. I want to say, especially to the younger people who are here, it can be so easy to say, well, yeah, if someone else will pick up that mantle, of course, it'll keep going. No, don't say that. Look yourself in the mirror and say, I'm going to be the one who takes the torch who says the gospel is not going to stop with the previous generation. I'm going to continue. I'm going to speak with urgency. Tether yourself to the truth. Speak the truth with urgency and love. And the third thing that Paul says for how we love in a broken world in this passage to, to finish out the letter is invest in people. Invest in people. This is verses 9 through 22 of the letter. Paul is going to list at least 17 different people in this passage. I'm not going to read them again. That was hard to do. A lot of, a lot of words that are hard to say. Um, most of them we don't really know much about, but Paul did. And Timothy obviously did. Some of these people were great disappointments to Paul. Like Demas, who we already saw, who really disappointed him, abandoned him, left him, left the faith, walked away. Some are like, I think I, can you go to the next one, Mary Joe? Some wounded Paul. He mentions this guy named Alexander the coppersmith who did him great harm. Many actually think that this is the same Alexander who is in, um, at the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 1, a guy that Paul says he shipwrecked his faith and Paul says he actually handed him over to Satan to learn not to blaspheme. 
A lot of people think it's the same guy that he mentions here who did damage and, and wounded Paul in some way. When you choose to get involved with people, to get involved in their lives, to invest in people, some people are going to disappoint you. Some people are going to hurt you. That's unfortunately part of life. But some are going to be like Mark in verse 11. This is the same Mark who, if you've read the book of Acts, you know, he went on a mission trip with Paul and Barnabas. And at some point on the mission trip, for whatever reason, we're not sure exactly why, Mark decided not to go on. He left them. He abandoned them on the mission field and went back home. And the next time that Paul and Barnabas were going to get together to go on a mission trip, Barnabas wanted to take Paul and Paul was like, wanted to take Mark. And Paul was like, no, I'm not going to bring a guy who can't see this to the end. And it leads to this big falling out between Paul and Barnabas. So Barnabas takes Mark and Paul takes Silas. And there's kind of a splitting of ways there. And, and evidently Paul was not Mark's biggest fan at that time. But at some point along the way, they're reunited. And now, this is so beautiful. Paul says to Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me in my ministry. You never know what a difference it's gonna make when you choose to invest in people's lives. Some of them will disappoint you. Some of them will wound you. But there's people who you may even think right now, like they just don't get it. And I'm just kind of turning my wheels, giving my time to them. But you never know who God is going to raise up and use one day to make a big difference in the gospel for the world. This is the same Mark who's going to go on and write the gospel of Mark, the second gospel. And tradition has it that he will die a martyr's death. Who are the people who have invested in you? Just think for a second. I know you can think of people, you can think of names, who saw something in you that you didn't even see in yourself. Maybe you should go and thank them and just thank them for, for investing the time to help you follow Jesus. I think for me, people like, and there's too many to list, but people like uh, my mom, my dad, Pastor Bart, Gabriel has had, a, had an impact on me. And who are you investing your life into? When you're at the end of your life, like Paul, you're probably not going to be thinking a lot about money that you made, accomplishments that you had. You're probably going to be thinking about individuals, names. That's going to be what comes to your mind. The people that you invested in. What individuals did you give time to pour into their lives to speak truth and love to them, to help them follow Jesus? When I ask uh, Craig and the team to come back up, we're going to close out here. So how are we going to love in a broken world? We're going to tether ourselves to truth. We're going to live in the scriptures. We're going to find ways to get our minds immersed in scripture. We're going to speak the truth with urgency and love because Jesus is coming back. People can't tolerate the truth and they're dying because of it. And the gospel can't stop with the previous generation. And we're going to invest in people because that is what is going to last. Let's pray. Dear Father, God, I thank you for the promise at the end of this letter 
where Paul says that though all others had abandoned him, that Jesus, you stood by him. That that's the promise. And Lord, as we're called in increasingly broken times, it's not getting easier to follow Jesus, it's getting harder. And we feel it. I think every one of us, if we're honest, we feel it. Would you help us, Holy Spirit? Would you help us to do this together? May we be people of the truth. May we be people who love others enough and who know the urgency of the moment enough to speak, to open our mouths. May we be people who are willing to give our lives away, to invest in the lives of other people, even when they hurt us, even when they disappoint us, because we know that it's worth it. Would you help us, Jesus? We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand and let's end by singing of the all-sufficiency. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this teaching blessed you. If you ever find yourself in the Birmingham, Alabama area, come check us out. For more information, please visit fullness.life.